Hey, Nick, we have some exciting news to announce regarding um, our friends over at the OBG Project. The OBG Project folks have now put all of OBG First within the OBG Resident Core. So you get OBG First for your entire OBGYN residency. How incredible is that, Faye? Yeah, that sounds really great. And just to remind you guys, the Resident Core over at the OBG Project is completely free. All you have to do is sign up and prove that you're a resident. And then you'll get not only OBG First, but also the OBG L&D ebook, as well as excellent curricula, as you know, as well as self-test quizzes and things like that for your studying. Yeah, that's over a $198 per year value. So if you are interested in getting this free educational resource, head over to our website, creagsrivercoffee.com, check out the sidebar, get signed up for the OBG Resident Core, and by extension, OBG First, the OBG L&D eBook, all of this awesome stuff, absolutely free, four years of residency. Welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs over, over Coffee. Coffee. All right, guys. So today we're back with another Journal Club style uh, episode. Today we're going to be talking about the Contraceptive Choice Project, which was a huge study that really did impact our GYN care. So Nick, what are our learning objectives for today? Yeah. So as always with these style of podcasts, we're going to review um, the Contraceptive Choice Project paper to start. We're going to discuss how it's impacted OBGYN care and understand how the study has impacted our practice today. Like we start off with all of these, Faye, we learn about the special title and all of the other things. Um, let's get into the background of this. Yeah. So we'll talk about the title, when this was published and who published it and where it was published and who funded it and all that stuff. So uh, the title for this uh, study is actually the Contraceptive Choice Project. Um, and then, you know, the small in smaller print, reducing barriers to long acting reversible contraception. Um, this was done by a group uh, at the Department of OBGYN at Washington St. Louis School of Medicine. Um, the first author was actually a PhD and it was backed up by a bunch of MDs. And the first paper that came from this was published in AJOG, so the gray, in 2010. So it's a little older of a study, but I think it's still very important. And that first portion published on the first 2,500 patients in the study. And then the follow-up was actually published in clinical OBGYN in 2014 and included um, that large number over 9,000 patients. The study was funded by an anonymous foundation as well as um, a bunch of uh, research awards. So the first is a Mid-Career Investigator Award in Women's uh, Health Research and a Clinical Translation Science Award um, and the NCRR. In terms of why the study was done, Nick, why did the authors decide to do the study? At the time that this was written, about half of pregnancies that occurred in the United States were unintended. A lot of pregnancies in that, it had been found, were resulting from incorrect or inconsistent use of birth control methods. And so with that, there was a thought that maybe long-acting reversible contraceptives could be the answer to that incorrect or inconsistent use. But there was this other problem in that LARC use overall was very low. Less than 3% of women in the United States at that time used a LARC. The Contraceptive Choice Project was essentially a project to promote the use of LARCs in the St. Louis region um, and then determine the impact. 
So overall, they were providing no-cost contraception to a large number of women in the St. Louis region as their primary objective, with a secondary objective to reduce unintended pregnancy at the population level. And they needed to overcome two barriers to accomplish this. Of course, the first being the financial obstacles, but then the second being the lack of patient awareness surrounding LARC as a method and its safety and efficacy. So essentially, if you had to like put this out to something, we're providing birth control for free, but we're kind of also bringing about a marketing campaign, if you will, for long-acting reversible contraception. How do they do this, Faye? Yeah, so this was a prospective cohort study, and their goal was to get 10,000 women in the St. Louis region, so it's huge. And the intervention was, again, as Nick said, to provide each participant with a contraceptive of her choice at no cost for three years. And so subject recruitment was um, basically a convenience sample. So they didn't go out and say, you know, we're going to randomize people to being able to get free contraceptives and other people to not being able to get free contraceptives. But they just said that they chose women at specific clinic locations via a general awareness of choice of this project through medical providers. And the clinics that they went to were um, a few university-affiliated clinics, uh, two facilities that provided abortion services, and community clinics and things like that. So again, a convenience sample where they could get patients or subjects to participate in the study. Those that were eligible had to be between the ages of 14 to 45. They had to reside in or seek clinical services in a recruitment site in the St. Louis region. So basically, this was only limited to the St. Louis region. They had to have been sexually active with a male partner in the last six months or anticipate sexual activity with a male partner in the next six months. They couldn't have had any type of tubal ligation or hysterectomy, so basically patients that could get pregnant. And they were patients that did not desire pregnancy in the next year, and they had to currently either not be using contraception or interested in starting a new reversible contraceptive method. So basically someone, not someone who wanted a tubal ligation. So Nick, talk to us a little bit about the recruitment, screening, and all of that stuff. How do they get these patients to uh, participate in the study? Yeah, so they had basically two choices. They could do it on-site, in-person, or done by telephone. The person who was doing the recruitment and screening in either place was a person who was trained with a scripted introduction to LARC methods, including a levonorgestrel IUD, a copper IUD, and subdermal implants. So enrollment occurred in these one and a half to two hour sessions in person, and the first reason for that was one, to rule out pregnancy, and then number two was to provide contraceptive counseling. Due to staffing constraints, it was noted not every patient got exactly the same counseling. At some of the sites that were more university-affiliated, they followed this LARC script. But then at the more community-based sites with these staffing constraints, patients really received what they was characterized as more routine family planning counseling. And then, of course, as part of this recruitment and screening process, informed consent was undertaken for the study. If patients wanted a LARC method done, they had the insertion then performed by a trained professional, um, an emergency contraception provided as needed um, based on usual indications. Follow-up after recruitment screening enrollments was performed by phone at 3, 6, 12, 18, 24, 30, and 36 months. Participants got $10 at each completed survey. The study also screened for gonorrhea and chlamydia in every patient it visits at 12, 24, and 36 months. This is a huge undertaking to follow 
these people for three years and to do it at such a frequent basis. Um, so kudos to them on that. Um, yeah. And then, of course, kind of they collected a lot of information from a study perspective on baseline demographics, obstetrics, gynecologic history, and then at those follow-up visits, taking information regarding pregnancy status, use of contraception, et cetera. Let's get into it, Faye. What did they find? Yeah. So we'll divide this up into two because technically, you know, the results were first for the uh, 2,500 in the initial cohort, and then they included everybody in that greater than 9,000 women in the second study. So in that first cohort in the 2010 study, when they looked at the population, basically um, they had screened over 4,000 women in this period between August 2007 to December 2008. Over 3,500 met eligibility criteria and ultimately 2,500 were enrolled. 74% of them occurred at this university-based recruitment site and the average age was about 25 and did range the entire range of their eligibility criteria, which was 14 to 45. And it was very interesting to note that the majority were 25 or younger. So only 36% were older than 25. In their population, they were quite diverse. Uh, About 49% were white, 44% black. And then 42% of those who participated in the study had no insurance, and more than half reported difficulty paying for transportation, food, housing, or medications in some way. Also, interestingly, 63.7% were single or never married. 41% were nulliparous. But it's also really interesting to note that of the patients who were Paris or who had had previous children, 54% of them reported having two or more children. So very clearly, you know, I think we're capturing patients who are not just single and don't want to have children, but actually patients who have had multiple children in the past. Interestingly as well, when patients were given the ability to choose whatever method they wanted with no cost to them, 67%, so two-thirds of them, chose a long-acting reversible contraceptive with you know the other third choosing other methods. And of those that chose LARC, 47% chose the levonorgestrel IUD, uh, 9.3% chose the copper IUD, and 11% chose um, the subdermal implant. And LARC users, it was interestingly noted, were more likely to be recruited at an abortion clinic um, and reported greater parity or history of abortion. And those who reported black or other race, single or never married, one or no lifetime partners were actually less likely to choose a LARC. So these were the findings that they had in the period that they had for the 2,500 patients. Nick, let's move on to the broader findings that they had for everybody. So what were those? Yeah, remember the initial study was published in 2010, and then the subsequent follow-up with all of these patients was published in 2014 that got us up to over 9,000 patients in the cohort. Demographics are overall pretty similar at that point. And at the end of the study, LARC users were more likely than non-LARC users to continue their contraceptive of choice at 12 and 24 months. So 86 versus 55% of continuation at 12 months and 77 versus 41% at 24 months. In terms of what had the highest continuation rates, the IUDs were definitely the winners here. Um, 88% for the levonorgestrel IUD and 84% for the copper IUD at 12 months. And then at 24 months, 79% for levonorgestrel, 77% for copper. So those were definitely the ones that seemed to do the best in terms of continuation rates. They also note kind of the continuation rates of non-LARC methods, and we'll post a figure from the paper on our website that's just interesting in looking particularly at younger patients. The non-LARC continuation was poorer for both younger patients and older patients 
Either way, some people voiced concern with this study that with increased LARC use, there may be a high risk or an increase of high risk sexual behavior. Um, and I'm sure like if you've been around women's health for a while, you've heard that argument time and time before. Um, mm -hmm. But the choice study actually gives us some evidence to say that there really is no evidence to suggest that there was increased sexual risk taking with LARC use. 71% of patients reported no change in their number of sexual partners at six and 12 months. Only 16% reported an increase. And of those patients who reported an increase, 80% of them had a change from zero to one partner. So mm -hmm. hardly can be construed as high risk sexual behavior. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the percent of women who were reporting multiple partners at baseline was significantly reduced actually at six and 12 months. Um, so from about 5% to about 3%. And then finally, remember the whole point of this was looking out at unintended pregnancy rates and they found a reduction in that rate. The failure rates for the pill patch and ring as methods were around 4.8%, 7.8%, and 9.4%. So progressing from around 5 to around 10% at 1, 2, and 3 years ultimately. The failure rate for LARC users remains less than 1% throughout the three-year period, um, cumulatively 03 06 and 0.9% at each year. Non-LARC users were 22 times as likely to experience an unintended pregnancy compared to their counterparts using LARC-based methods. And adolescent users specifically of pill patch or ring type of methods were twice as likely as older women to experience unintended pregnancies. So again, sort of more failure rates among younger patients there with those short acting methods. And then as well, great evidence for the efficacy of LARC in preventing unintended pregnancy. And then I think as well, you know, one of the things that gets pointed to, especially in the national dialogue, is things surrounding teen pregnancy rates. And they actually demonstrated in the CHOICE study a what I'll characterize as a super decreased rate of pregnancy, birth, and abortion amongst teens. So the national incidence of pregnancy amongst teenagers at this time was about 158 per 1,000 for a birth 94 per 1,000, and abortion about 41 per 1,000. And the CHOICE study, again, we went from 158 pregnancies per 1,000 to 34, for birth 94 to 19.4, and for abortion from 41 to 9.7 per 1,000. That's a greater than 75% reduction across the board. Um, yeah. And so, you know, again, arguing for the importance of contraception um, and also the fact that I'm not taking away from the fact that abortion is healthcare, but if you wanna reduce abortion rates, provide access to reliable contraception. Yeah, this is great data to suggest that. And then the final thing, Faye, I guess we should talk about is contraception in overweight and obese populations, because there is some data from choice here as well. BMI actually was not found to be a significant risk factor um, for failure methods for the pill, patch, or vaginal ring. There were a total of 334 unintended pregnancies in this group, and 128 of those were determined to be a result of contraceptive failure. There additionally was some good information here about weight gain with contraceptive methods, which is a common concern of patients coming in the office for contraceptive counseling. 
those who had some sort of perceived weight gain, so they felt like since starting a method, they gained weight, were more likely to be on an implant or using um, Depo-Provera. Actually, though, the objective weight gain on average was 10.3 pounds, and adjusted models identified only black races having a significant association with weight gain in 12 months. So there wasn't anything associated necessarily um, with the contraceptive method itself, which is an interesting finding there. Um, though again, the limitations of race is sort of the risk factor there. We don't get into the underlying reasons of why that was. Yeah. That was a lot of data, Faye. Sorry for taking up so much of the airwaves there. Um, let's get <laughs> no, to no the problem. conclusions, though, about what our, what our listeners should take away. So this was a study with a huge number of patients or women seeking reversible contraception. And what this study ultimately showed was that when we remove the barriers of things like cost, access, and knowledge of different types of contraceptions, then women tended to choose the most effective and least user-dependent methods more often. And in the general population, while LARC use was only 3%, in this population, that number went up to, like we said, about two-thirds. So again, 46% of this population chose the levonorgestrel IUD, 12% chose a copper IUD, and almost 17% chose the implant. And what was more important was that, you know, while some people may argue that LARCs are going to be expensive to provide and will people just, you know, stop using them after a while, this study actually showed that there was a high rate of continued use. They also found that patients overall, we didn't talk about this in the results, but they were highly satisfied with their method of choice of contraception. And also we found that by providing women with free contraception, especially with LARCs, this decreased the risk of unintended pregnancies, teen pregnancies, teen birth rates, and teen abortion rates. So all around, what this study showed was that providing access to free and readily available contraception led to a lot of decrease in things that are undesirable, presumably by the authors and by our community, which is, again, unintended pregnancies and abortion rates. So, Nick, I think, you know, it's really interesting to see kind of the follow-up to this study and to see what else has been done around the country. So talk to us a little bit about, number one, what are our numbers now? You know, what other places have performed similar interventions uh, to St. Louis? Yeah, so probably the most famous or well-known of these is the Colorado Family Planning Initiative, um, which similarly provided access to long-acting reversible contraception in the state. Um, and I think the thing to take away from it is that there's replicable results here. So they found that they were able to decrease teen birth rates by half. They were able to decrease abortion rates by half or the average time to first birth increased by a little over a year amongst all women. So people are able to delay childbearing if they like. The state estimated that they avoided around 66 to 69 million of cost by performing the initiative, um, which now put economic dollars which is the yeah. only language that I think our bureaucrats and politicians can speak sometimes <laughs> um, right. to say like, this really does work. And then 
with the Centers for Disease Control, I think in the publication of these studies and the changing in counseling by OBGYNs, we definitely have increased use of LARC now. The most recent data we were able to find was around 2015 to 2017, at which point the United States had increased its use of LARC amongst reproductively aged women from less than 3% to now 10.3%. And LARC use was highest among young women aged 20 to 29, where that demographic was using LARC at about a 13 percent clip. Um, so again, it's really changed kind of how we practice in the way of counseling surrounding this and that, you know, these are successful, highly used methods. But I think too, that there's some patient choice things here just again, because they're better known. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, that's it for today. Once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed this episode or any of our other episodes, go ahead and go into your favorite podcatcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play. Give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us online on Twitter at CreagsOverCoff1, on Instagram and Facebook at CreagsOverCoffee. Or if you love the show and want to support us, head over to patreon.com slash CreagsOverCoffee. Send us some love and we'll send you some swag. You can find show notes for this show and all of our other episodes, as well as the Rosh Review Question of the Week on our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. And finally, if you have a question for us, a correction to this or any of our prior episodes, or just want to say hi, email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. <laughs>